The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. So we're here, we're back. Paul and Stuart were not able to make it tonight, but this is this is Hotcakes and this is the Curbsiders. We're going to be talking about a bunch of different articles tonight, some COVID and some non-COVID. With us again, Rahul Ganatra, Emmy Okamoto, and our fearless producer, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, is going to tell you about our guest and then about the specific topics we had on this show. Sure. So Dr. Utibe Essien recently joined us on our episode on addressing anti-Black racism in medicine. Dr. Essien is an assistant professor of medicine and health equity researcher at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. His research focuses on racial and ethnic disparities in the management of cardiovascular diseases, and he has recently applied this research framework to COVID-19 and has become a national expert in the health disparities that are disproportionately affecting racial and ethnic minorities during this pandemic. So tonight during the show, we're going to have Dr. Essien and Rahul discuss a recent NEJM paper on disparities in hospitalization and mortality for Black versus white COVID-19 patients. Emmy's going to cover hormone therapy and the treatment of depression, and Matt is going to give us the latest and tastiest updates on probiotics. Um, And I think that covers everything, right, Matt? Yeah. And did you mention dexamethasone? Because I know people are going to be really excited about that. Yes, uh, Rahul I should will, say. <laughs> Rahul will tease a tutorial for that. And so now, without further ado, let's get on to our discussion. Uh, Don't you want to start with silver linings? <laughs> I do want to start with silver linings. All yeah. right. Pew, 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 pew. Utibe, so we want to start with you. You're our esteemed guest. Can you tell us what's something that you've been enjoying particularly lately? Uh, We call this the silver linings uh, part since COVID has been a challenging time. But if you wanted to give us something heavy, that's okay too. Well, I can can switch it up. I can switch it up. You know, I just saw today that um, Chicken Run, the movie, is coming out with a sequel. So this is this (laughs) clay animation uh, movie that's was last uh, made about 20 years ago. It's on Netflix for all those of interest. Um, And so that is what I plan on watching after we finish recording to bring me back to when I watched it 20 years ago in London with my mom and her (laughs) sister. Um, And it's going to be a fun time. I have never seen that. So you're, this is a hard for chicken, chicken run. Number one, you're making a hard recommendation that I, that I also watched that this evening. Dude, I'm all in, all in. Okay. It's going to be perfect for pre-rounds tomorrow. It sounds like it. Uh, Sarah, did you have a pick of the week? Uh, yes, mine's um, pretty simple. It's nectarines. Just, That's it. Just, just nectarines, nectarines, no special Big ones? Big fan. Just, no, just, just go to Publix, get a nectarine, live your best life. Yeah. Not Are even organic. The more pesticides, I, the better. I actually, yeah, I actually put extra on mine. <laughs> It kills COVID, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let's not start that rumor. (laughs) Emmy, you were saying? Oh, no, our nectarines in season. I have some good peaches, too. So, yeah. I think they're always in, they're usually around the same time, right? I feel like they're cousins. I'm going to create. going to curtail the nectarine thing. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. I was just going to say, speaking, you know, I th- I bet uh, Rahul's going to talk to us about some dogs, and I bet you a dog could sniff out, like, a great 
piece of fruit, nectarines, peaches, watermelons. Seamless transition. Cantaloupes. Rahul, what's what's going on with dogs in COVID-19? So I'd like to talk a little bit, if I may, about the dog olfactory system. <laughs> is this our fun animal fact? This is our fun animal fact for this episode. We should develop a, uh, a little background theme music for these topics. Okay, so dogs are are pretty great, right? They you know they don't need anything more to make dogs sort of a silver lining. Um, but the dog olfactory system, it turns out, is pretty sophisticated and is actually being tested as a diagnostic tool uh, for COVID nineteen. Um, so these researchers at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine are uh, currently conducting a study where they are exposing uh, eight dogs. Uh, which are all either yellow, black, or chocolate labs um, over a three-week period to um, uh, saliva and urine samples from patients who test positive for COVID-19. And the idea here is to see if the dogs can detect volatile organic compounds that uh, uh, might be diagnostically useful uh, for for detecting which patients have COVID-19 based on these specimens. That That is incredible. I, someone was telling me about this at work I work in Philadelphia. Someone was telling me about this and I thought they were joking around. I mean, it does kind of sound ridiculous, but everyone has seen videos uh, on YouTube of dogs like, you know, sniffing out, you know, really kind of hidden things. And I mean, everyone knows that everyone, if you've ever spent time with a dog, you know that their sense of smell is like, is incredible. Dogs have over 300 million olfactory receptors in the average nose, whereas humans have a measly 5 million or less. And the dog knows there, there have been studies looking at dogs, uh, uh, detecting, uh, orders of epileptic seizures, diabetic ketoacidosis. I even saw one, uh, study in nature a couple of years ago about using dogs to diagnose, uh, patients with malaria. So there's a lot of people have asked this question based on recognizing the dog uh, olfactory system as an amazing thing. So stay tuned for, for, uh, the final results of this. This th- this seems so much more effective. Utube, do they ask you the like the questions or like have you been have you traveled anywhere like when you're walking into work? And I'm like, I, yeah, I've traveled here where there's patients with COVID. Like that's the question. <laughs> you shouldn't be asking me that. You you should have a dog out here sniffing me to tell me if I'm mm-hmm. now of COVID. That sounds so much better. Someone who's a little afraid of dogs, I actually appreciate the questions and the kind of temperature <laughs> wand, but. Um, I, I hear where you're coming from. <laughs> All right. Now, probably we should move on to some actual, well, I, this was actual medicine. No, sorry, Rahul. I didn't mean to trash <laughs> your pick of the week. I really enjoyed it, but we should move you on. Cut me to, deep, Matt. <laughs> why don't you tell us, why don't you set up this, this first article that we're going to talk about? Sure. So the article that we are going to spend a little bit of time talking about today is a pretty special article from the New England Journal of Medicine. It's actually headlined as a special article, which indicates this is something they don't do very often. We are privileged to be joined today by Dr. Utibe Essien to discuss uh, what I think is a really important a piece of uh, recent medical evidence uh, from the New England Journal. And I chose this paper because I think it's important to understand the impact that COVID-19 is having on Black Americans, because it's kind of a useful lens for understanding uh, disparities in health outcomes more broadly. 
And the New England Journal of Medicine so rarely publishes retrospective cohort studies that it kind of speaks to the uh, critical importance of this topic. And, and this paper provides a, a great uh, chance for us to learn some critical appraisal tools for this type of study. So this is a paper by um, a group of authors headed by Dr. Price Haywood. Uh, and this paper is called Hospitalization and Mortality Among Black Patients and White Patients with COVID-19. And it was published in the May 27 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. So the question that these authors were asking was, how do the clinical characteristics, hospitalizations, and mortality of COVID-19 among non-Hispanic Black people compare with those of non-Hispanic white people? A lot of early reports suggested that COVID-19 was having a disproportionate burden on Black people. And so this study was conducted uh, in response to those observations to further elucidate uh, the nature of that burden. So this was a retrospective cohort study. And the study population was 3,481 patients who all received care in uh, Ochsner Health, which is a large integrated health system in New Orleans, Louisiana. All the patients in the study had PCR-confirmed COVID-19. And the authors tell us that the Ochsner Health System serves a population of a little over half a million patients, of whom about 30% identify as Black and 70% identify as White, for comparison. There were two primary outcomes in this study. One was hospitalization, and then the other was in-hospital death. So how was this study carried out? Well, as you can imagine, there are a lot of differences in important uh, baseline covariates, the things I mentioned, um, because these patients were drawn from a real-world population rather than a uh, neat and tidy randomized population. And you can imagine that this presents a problem, which is how can you be sure that any differences you observe in the outcome, which in this case was uh, hospitalization or in-hospital death, are actually due to differences in the exposure, which in this case was black race or white race, uh, and rather than simply being correlated with those exposures and caused by something else altogether. So this is kind of the uh, age-old uh, correlation does not equal causation problem. I'm sure people are familiar with this, and it's the major uh, threat to the validity of uh, most observational studies. So the authors used a uh, well-accepted and kind of uh, uh, robust method to, to examine the baseline covariates. They uh, looked at, for continuous variables, the uh, something called the standardized mean difference, which is basically a measure of how different are these baseline characteristics from each other. And if there were variables that had very large differences between them, like age, blood pressure, lab values, they basically would then... Uh, uh, you know, set an arbitrary cutoff point for how different something is. And then for anything that was above that, uh, they included that in their regression model. So there's other ways to deal with this, but this is a sort of quantitative way to, you know, look at the covariates that you think could affect the outcome and could be uh, associated with the exposure, compare them quantitatively, and then decide what you think might be relevant to control for uh, in the model. Before I go through the results, I'd like to take advantage of having an expert in social determinants of health here with us on the show. Utibe, what stuck out to you about the results from this paper? And what were the areas, um, uh, the differences between the white patients and black patients that kind of uh, elicited your attention when reading this paper? Yeah, so I think just the striking differences in the numbers um, is really what stood out to me the most. And I really appreciate that the authors went through each of the key um, steps along the continuum of COVID-19 from cases to hospitalization to intensive care utilization through to mortality. And along each of those um, 
variables along each of those outcomes, rather, we saw that Black Americans who, as you mentioned, made up about 30% of the population served by this health system were significantly disproportionately impacted. So 76% of hospitalized patients with COVID-19 were Black. 70.5% of those who died from infection were Black. Um, and so th- that really was the most striking finding to me. And I imagine that, again, we'll, we'll dig into some of the odds ratios and adjusted analyses, et cetera. But just looking at it, the raw numbers, when I first saw the reports out of Louisiana, two months before this study came out, um, is really what shocked me the most. Utibe, this, it, for table one, the, where, where they look at the baseline characteristics of all the patients, this Charleston comorbidity index, is that a common thing that the audience should be aware of that they'll, they'll see in future papers? Or is this something relatively unique to this paper? Yeah, so the Charleston uh, captures several comorbid factors, including those that are also listed under uh, Table 1, hypertension, diabetes, chronic lung disease, uh, malignancies. And so that is a marker that is used in several um, clinical research studies to try and get at um, kind of a a comorbidity factor or score rather than just listing the various comorbidities. You can see here that um, that number also is significantly different across ratios. What was interesting about that index, um, getting to the results, is that it was slightly a hazard ratio for hospitalization at 1.05, but it wasn't actually um, significant in mortality, which is, you know, you learn that uh, COVID deaths are so linked to comorbidities. And I just couldn't wrap my head around how that didn't come out significant with the what goes into it. I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that. I wish I had a better answer to that point you raise, Emmy, rather than just sharing your surprise at that? I really don't. I mean, it makes me suspect that there could be additional confounders in the relationship between the Charleston comorbidity index score and in hospital death that weren't captured in this data. Because we do know that uh, having more comorbidities in advanced age do predispose people to greater risk of in-hospital death. So I'm not quite sure. Just one other thing in that table one that stuck out to me that I had highlighted was the number of patients, white versus black, who were seen in a primary care office or urgent care versus an emergency department. More black patients were seen in the emergency department than in uh, than white patients and more less black patients were seen in a primary care office. And I thought that might be something else that just pointing out disparity, the likelihood that you have a primary care doctor as well. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's one of the most significant implications of this uh, analysis, though it didn't quite make it to the um, the key results section or the discussion, is that as we are here three months into the pandemic, we know that um, only four states, including Kansas, Delaware, Nevada, and Illinois, are capturing testing uh, by race and ethnicity. Um, and the fact of the matter is that individuals still are concerned that either anecdotally or as the data are showing here that they're showing up to their primary care doctor if they have one and being refused a test. Um, these data don't show that. They don't obviously do any qualitative analyses of these patients, but I think that's certainly of concern. Um, and so those numbers are really striking And really something for us to think about moving forward in this pandemic is we know how important and critical testing is if we're not able to equitably 
um, provide testing across the board? Um, how are we going to actually re- address these disparities that we'll, we'll dig into a little bit more? Rahul, where do you want to go next with the results section? So I think now would be a good time to uh, take a look at some of the characteristics highlighted in table two. And these are characteristics that uh, white patients and black patients who are hospitalized, uh, the subgroup of patients who uh, tested positive who were hospitalized and how they differed between patients. Um, I have some observations about the differences here that uh, Utebe, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on. I mean, the first thing that stuck out to me is that the average age of black patients who required hospitalization was almost nine years younger than uh, the average age of white patients who required hospitalization. And you can see going down the columns that more black patients presented with fever, um, fewer black patients presented with uh, uh, lymphopenia, and they had a greater burden of comorbidities like diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. Um, I'm curious kind of what inferences we can make based on these observations about the hospitalized population. Yeah, so um, unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that as the data were coming out of China and Italy and the early reports here from the U.S. that um, age greater than 65 and chronic comorbidities, including hypertension, diabetes, and pulmonary disease, were associated with severe infection and death from COVID-19. Um, many of us working in the health equity space were concerned that Though African Americans were are younger, natural overall in this population, um, they are potentially going to be at risk. Every um, study, all of us who've been in med school have seen the charts put up by our professors that show that Black individuals are more likely to have diabetes, hypertension, pulmonary disease such as asthma, you name it. Unfortunately, it is more common and also more likely to have it uh, at a younger age and. There's been a lot of discussion uh, nationally around this current climate or moment about weathering, about uh, chronic stress resulting in chronic um, diseases, um, about just socioeconomic factors in general resulting in higher rates of chronic disease, where you live, your fact that African-Americans have higher rates of unemployment, and some of these social factors that, again, ultimately impact uh, one's health really, I believe, explains that nearly 10-year difference in age for Black Americans versus white Americans hospitalized with COVID in this subset. Utibe, can I ask you to, I, I haven't heard the term weathering before. I think I have it from context, but can you explain that? Yeah, for sure. So it's weathering is this idea. Again, it's some people believe in it. Some um, think that it's um, kind of overemphasizing it, but it's actually a pretty old hypothesis back in the 90s. Um, it was especially um, brought up thinking about maternal health and think, wondering why there is so much variation disparities in um, Black women's health, especially during pregnancy versus white women. And there was this idea that there's cumulative exposure to socioeconomic disadvantage resulting in poor health. I think someone had this great analogy of Um, You know, a couple of drops of rain on a cement um, sidewalk, you know, can usually just be washed off and no issue. You see it and walk away from it. But that same drop of water, same drop of rain for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, at some point is going to degrade um, that sidewalk. And the idea is that the socioeconomic disadvantage, the discrimination that Black Americans have faced in our country over decades, um, ultimately is resulting in a similar degradation in our cells, in our vessels, et cetera. 
I think that's really telling. I mean, in some ways, COVID-19 is kind of acting like a litmus test to sort of bring out the impact of, you know, centuries of disparities that have led to the reality where many Black Americans uh, do have more of the comorbidities that predispose to severe outcomes from this disease and have them, as you said, at a younger age than than white patients. So we're, we're seeing real-world evidence of that uh, in Table 2 in this paper. There's another thing I'd like to get everyone's thoughts about um, based on some data we're seeing in Table 2. Um, as Utibe mentioned, we know that um, the Black population uh, tends to be younger, and there's a variety of reasons for that in this paper, but the life expectancy of Black Americans at birth, at least as of 2017, across the board was something like three and a half years uh, less than white people, with I'm sure a lot of regional differences. Um, but based on that observation alone, you you could expect that there would be more older white patients in this study than older Black people, just because there, there's more older white people than black people. And this is supported by the observation that the mean age of black people in the study who are hospitalized was about nine years less. And we also see, as Dr. Essien mentioned, that black patients had uh, more uh, comorbidities at a younger age. But even ignoring the comorbidities for a moment, given that imbalance in age, you should expect that white patients should contribute more deaths than black people, simply because there are more older white people, more people at risk for, for death. And in the unadjusted model for risk of in-hospital death, that's exactly what we saw. We saw that there was a higher case fatality rate uh, for white patients for death. Um, It was um, 30.1% of white patients died compared with 21.6% of black patients. But when we controlled for comorbidities, socioeconomic status, clinical variables, we saw that uh, black race was actually not associated with an increased odds for in-hospital death, uh, even though it was associated with an increased odds for hospitalization. Utebe, I'd love to have you unpack this for us. I was a little puzzled by this, and I'm curious if you have any uh, insight into why uh, we aren't seeing uh, uh, black race being associated with a greater odds of in-hospital death. Yeah, I was also struck by that. You know, it's harder to get that exciting tweet out there to show like people need to pay attention to this when the key outcomes seem to not be um, favor the um, the finding of that I suspected. But I think it still is important to think about. A, you mentioned the age factor. Older um, white Americans, rather in the cohort, did tend to be older, and we know that age is a significant risk factor for death from COVID nineteen. Um, and I, I think, again, highlighting that really clearly is the fact that older populations also have access to more insurance based on um, Medicare. We saw that Medicare versus commercial insurance in this cohort were, was associated with higher rates of hospitalization. Um, I don't believe it was associated with higher rates of um, death, but that's something that perhaps the um, authors could potentially have considered looking at. Um, again, just thinking about access to care um, resulting in who ends up in the hospital. I think the concern that I have, which again is difficult to capture in this analysis, is whether individuals who are the sickest were actually dying in the hospital. Uh, I think as the numbers showed regarding those who went to urgent care and those who went to primary care, in terms of the racial differences there, it's quite possible that there are folks who are like, you know what, I don't trust the hospital. There's this crazy infection going on. I'm not going to go in um, and didn't actually show up at the hospital or 
because of all of the various social factors that um, we've talked about potentially just didn't have access to the hospital, whether it was transportation issues, EMS issue. Um, they called their doctor and their doc said, you know what, just write it out at home, um, call us in, in a day or so if your symptoms persist and potentially could have died. Uh, you know, those anecdotal stories probably don't make up the, the, um, the clear difference in the um, mortality ratio, but I think that those are just some of the ideas that were rolling in my head around why that didn't stand out as significant. Great. I mean, my take-home message from this paper is that it is relatively clear um, from not only this study, but also um, uh, nationwide surveillance data maintained by CDC that Black Americans are disproportionately represented among patients hospitalized uh, and patients dying from COVID-19. And when you control for demographic and clinical variables, it looks like Black race is associated with about a twofold increased odds of hospitalization. But at least in this study, we are not seeing uh, an increase in the odds of in-hospital death. Utibe, any final words on this study to contribute? Yeah, so the, th- the three areas for context, I think, again, I, I appreciate Raul that um, summary are real reminder rather that this hospital system is based within 30 minutes of Katrina, um, or rather of the ninth ward, um, which was the hardest hit neighborhood by Hurricane Katrina just less than 15 years ago. Um, I think that context is so important as we think about who has access to healthcare, as we think about the weathering hypothesis and who, because of a disruption, complete disruption, unexpected disruption in their lives over the last 15 years have had lack of employment, lack of income, lack of home ownership, lack of insurance. Um, And I think those two really tie into the national conversation being had right now about race and medicine, how Black individuals have such a significant high prevalence of racial risk, of clinical social risk factors um, that put them at higher risk for uh, COVID-19 infection and death. Um, as well as just a higher rate of a higher rate of the social risk factors. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, and so I think that contest is really helpful as we read this study. Before we transition to Emmy's article, which is not a COVID article, I know we're not going to spend a full time on this, but Rahul, the, the dexamethadone, we're recording this on the 23rd and the, the dexamethasone bomb dropped people very excited about that. The, the preprint data you told me has just come out. You've got a chance to look at it. So can we expect a tutorial? And are you excited about this data? Yes, I am positively scintillated about these data. <laughs> I mean, I feel like a new Harry Potter book just came out. Like I have not been as excited to devour something and discuss it with all my friends as I have been for this in quite some time. Um, a new so, Harry Potter. You're comparing COVID news to a new Harry Potter book. Wow. You really love medicine. That's <laughs> that's admirable. <laughs> um, so the brief takeaway from the dexamethasone paper, this is called the recovery trial. There's been a lot of uh, strong opinions uh, on both sides uh, back and forth on Twitter regarding, you know, before this paper was uh, was released as a preprint, just based on the press release alone, suggesting a 13% reduction in all-cause mortality from uh, the use of dexamethasone 6 milligrams once daily in patients with COVID-19, whether or not we should be using it. So that question has finally been answered by the release of this paper. Um, it does look like 
pretty compelling evidence from a large randomized controlled trial conducted in the United Kingdom that a relatively low dose of dexamethasone was associated with a reduction and a large reduction at that in all-cause mortality in patients hospitalized with COVID-19. So this is really exciting. This is uh, the outcome that um, a lot of us were kind of saying was missing from the remdesivir uh, literature, um, all-cause mortality, uh, or at least a significant impact on it. And uh, it, looking at the, the subgroup analyses, it looks like the greatest benefit was seen in patients uh, who were mechanically ventilated, uh, where death was reduced by one-third, and in patients who were requiring supplemental oxygen, death was reduced by one-fifth. And there is no benefit seen in patients with symptoms of fewer than seven days in duration. So this really suggests that patients who have this uncontrolled inflammatory syndrome uh, later in the disease with COVID-19 are probably the, the patients who are benefiting the most here. So this is really exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into this in further detail and, uh, and talking to all my friends on Twitter. Thank you. That's I'm excited too. Not as excited as I would be for a new Harry Potter book, but... <laughs> I, I appreciate your excitement. Emmy, tell us, what do you have in store for us? What are we going to, what are we going to talk about? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's not Harry Potter book level, but uh, I did find it quite interesting. Um, the American Psychiatric Association Task Force put together a paper called Hormonal Treatments for Major Depressive Disorder. Um, and what I like about this is I always feel like there I have really nothing to give patients beyond, you know, SSRIs and a, a few therapies. And, and they note that the WHO says in, in 2030 that depression will be the leading disease burden worldwide, which is crazy to I, think about. I like did a double take when I was reading <laughs> that and I was like, I must be misunderstanding this. I'm going to ask Emmy about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very prevalent, um, you know, more so in women than men, and it just has a lot of uh, loss of work, loss of function associated with it and hard to treat, right? Yeah. The, so, I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but this is what, one thing that, that always comes up when you're hanging out with psychiatrists is the STAR-D trial where they put people through all these different iterations of, of just the standard therapies and there was about a third of patients that just have this treatment refractory depression that you just, you just, they try all these treatments, they try to augment and it doesn't work. And that's why, I guess that's why they're doing these hormonal treatments. Because honestly, when you told me we were going to cover this, I was like, wait, isn't that like off the grid kind of kooky stuff that like you pay cash out of pocket for and somebody, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what I, that's what I was thinking, but uh, tell us. So is yeah, there something to it? It's a little it? fringe, it is a fringe. little fringe still, but, but some things um, do have more strong recommendations. Um, so the, the issue with hormonal and psychiatric studies is that it's so highly variable. Um, you have, you know, are the levels measured? Were they normal borderline? What's their sex? What's the spectrum of psychiatric disorders. So all the studies are pretty small. Um, some are randomized control trials, some are blinded. And what they do is distill it down to say, look, we know the data is variable, but this is what we can do. So they looked at a few different axes. So the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, we'll start with. Um, we know that there's a link between clinical hypothyroidism and depression, and there's some evidence that subclinical hypothyroidism is associated, but most people with depression don't have thyroid abnormalities uh, that we know of, right? But if we look at T3, which is triiodothyronine, uh, we find that 
adding it to a TCA can accelerate a TCA response to medication uh, for depression. And this is where the STAR-D trial comes in. If monotherapy fails, you can augment your antidepressant with T3 for major depressive disorder uh, and see improvement. And that's an, actually an APA recommendation. I bet you patients would love you if you do that. That's, <laughs> I'm going to give yeah, you some thyroid hormone. Energy, yeah, feel good. And what's interesting is Dr. Mendel in her hypothyroidism episode mentioned that this is where she reaches for T3 when people have kind of this cognitive slowing uh, phenotype. So, so it's all along the same vein. Um that potentially augment your antidepressive. Unfortunately, the evidence isn't there for SSRI and SNRI yet, but there are trials ongoing. So has anyone ever prescribed T3? I haven't, but I, I'm thinking now I might I might call my friend Dr. Colburn before I do it for the first time, but I think I'm probably going to in the near future, especially since I'll, I'll be returning to primary care because the other thing we learned about T3, Emmy, on that thyroid episode was that like patients, most patients after two or three months, if they're having these hard to define symptoms of hypothyroidism, they may go away, but it takes a while. But for the patients that are like normalized on their TSH levels and they're still feeling bad, if I have the right person, I, I think I might try to add T3 just for bragging rights, really. And yeah, because it, it's the right not. thing for the patient, obviously. <laughs> of course. Yeah. The the next axis, hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Uh, so these will be your estradiols and your progestins and your testosterone. So when we talk about estrogen replacement therapy or hormone replacement therapy, if they still have a uterus and you don't want to give them unopposed estrogen, you'd give them the hormone replacement. So that's FDA approved for people who have symptoms, uh, physical symptoms of perimenopause or menopause. And what they found is if they, in addition to that, have depression, that's where HRT can work. So they wouldn't use HRT just for depression and perimenopausal, but it's helpful, say, if you're considering, you know, for vaginal dryness, maybe using a gel. If they also have depression, maybe you could consider a short course of HRT for them. Another one was uh, brexanolone, which is a progesterone derivative, which was FDA approved last year for postpartum depression. So first line is still your SSRI, uh, but brexanolone, which is a 60-hour infusion. Oh my so gosh. It's pretty long. Not for not for you know your normal patient, but it works within 24 hours. So if you have someone with severe refractory symptoms and you really need something fast, there, there is an option. Wait, a 60 hour. So they, is it like a take home? They it's, it's, uh, it's like the patients that are walking around with inotropes on, they have like some sort of medication de delivery device. Cause 60 hours, that's like more than a business day. <laughs> that's more than an entire day. <laughs> it's more than two. Yeah. Yeah, I that I don't know. I have not given that one either. All right, well, but there to, is a, <laughs> we'll have to look into that for the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and the last one is just testosterone, which you know we know that low testosterone is associated with depression, and they highlight there's no evidence to screen for testosterone if it's depression alone. So this goes for patients who also have hypogonadal symptoms that. Um, 
testosterone can help both depressive symptoms and a clinical testosterone deficiency. Um, so that's an option uh, in part of the risk benefit discussion that it would also benefit uh, potentially the depression. This, I mean, it sounds great. It's it's kind of treat it's treating the whole patient right because if the patient they're having physical symptoms from a hormonal deficiency and they're also depressed, you treat both and it works. It I'll buy that. It makes it makes sense. I know patients would. It's not going to be hard to get patient buy-in, and if you if you tell them that you're going to give them hormonal therapy for their depression, because all the time when patients in primary care they always come in and if they feel bad they want you to test their hormones, which a lot of the times I'm not even sure what I, what I should be checking what they mean by that, uh, because I think there's there's people out there that do a lot of off the grid testing as I mentioned a little earlier. Utibe, have you seen people doing this at your esteemed institution? Uh, uh, I mean, Cashlack Northeast, where you work, sorry. Or Cashlack Midwest. Are you in the Midwest or the Northeast? What do you consider? Uh, definitely not Northeast as a proud New Yorker. Um, I feel like I might as well be in Ohio, no shade, but... Um, All right, we'll call you the Midwest, Cashlack Midwest. Uh, what are they? What are they doing there for this? Yeah. So I, I have not practiced primary care, sadly, in almost a year and a half now. I'm all inpatient. So I haven't had um, had the pleasure of ordering as much thyroid hormone um, as I should. But I, I have not seen any of these um, prescribed. I'm looking forward to, to dropping these nuggets on my residents when I'm back on service. Okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of them are, are probably not something I'll routinely prescribe, but for those patients where you're on the line, where you're like, well, you kind of straddle this, you know, you also have these symptoms. Um, it could be helpful. And just to know that there are things in the pipeline, there are more than a dozen um, medications they mentioned in the paper. So there is more than just SSRIs. Yeah. And I, I think the key is that treatment refractory depression is, is just a, it's a big problem. It's, and we, we need to investigate all avenues. I know psychedelics are also be being looked at, uh, and I believe MDMA is in like phase three trials right now, which is, I never thought that would be the case either. So ketamine as well, which one is ketamine? Ketamine. Yes. I, I have or ketamine, uh, adjuncts that are similar to ketamine and ketamine seems a little bit more mainstream already because I know emergency departments and anesthesia, they've, they've used it a lot more. Uh, it's been used a lot more and, and it seems like now I've just been hearing more and more about that one. Well, uh, the last thing that we wanted to quickly mention on this show, the American, uh, the AGA, I don't want to feel like saying the whole thing. So the AGA put out some guidelines about the use of probiotics they developed eight questions. There is a lot of studies out there on this. And so they developed eight questions and then they went through the PICO process where they just tried to answer these questions and see what the evidence was. Just before I get into any of this, uh, in well, we can pull our panel here. Utibe, are you using probiotics or are you seeing them used in your institution? And if so, what for? I was going to ask, say, if that was personal, I was going to say, that feels a little HIPAA violating that. <laughs> I don't, you don't have to disclose your own probiotic use. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm an almond milk man myself. Uh, <laughs> so not being used much in my, in my practice personally, I've gone seven, whatever, what is it? Seven, eight years now without prescribing them. Um, I, if patients tell me that they're using them. I don't poo-poo them, but pun intended there for sure. <laughs> <Hey -o>. but, um, <laughs> uh, 
but I have not recommended them personally now. You know, I'm aware of one randomized trial that looked at probiotics for uh, prevention of recurrence of C. diff. Um, and, you know, there's a few trials here and there that, you know, will suggest a benefit to anything. And for things where the evidence is kind of all over the place, it's really important to, you know, look for guidelines that are uh, kind of syntheses of available evidence like this. Um, but so the only the only situation in which I've used probiotics in the past is for uh, patients who've had C. diff in the past, uh, uh, who receive antibiotics again for a new infection um, with the, the hope of uh, decreasing the risk of recurrence of C. diff. Emmy, what about you? Yeah. Oh, well, personally, I drink way too much kombucha, which is too <laughs> expensive. <laughs> Probably doesn't work. Yeah. But for patients, I don't prescribe, but I, I nod attentively because I do believe well in the placebo effect of, of them. So if they buy them, great. Could help. Maybe. You, you might tell us otherwise. Please, Matt. Well, I think- Tell us. I, I thought that they did a great job with this. Uh, of course, I don't have the the same you know eye for this as as Rahul does, but they they did look at they were looking for high quality systematic reviews that had been done to try to answer these questions. And while they asked eight questions, I think the ones that would be most interesting to highlight would be the first one, which is so for adults who are symptomatic with C diff infection, is there any utility in using probiotics? And the, the answer there, they said there's a low certainty of evidence that it that would provide any benefit. And we do know that the FMT, like the fecal, the fecal transplants do work. And so I, I think probiotics really just have not been shown to have a role for, for the active C. diff infection right now. There was a Cochrane review in 2008, and the authors note that since then, there wasn't a lot of new data. The other one that would be relevant to our audience is... In adults and kids on antibiotics, not for a C. diff infection, should probiotics be used? And here there was a Cochrane review in 2017, and that had 39 trials that were included in it. And they had a moderate certainty that they, they gave it a moderate certainty, the, the Cochrane did, that, that these would work to help prevent C. diff-associated diarrhea in patients who were on antibiotics. So for prevention of C. diff, not treatment. And this the the AGA panel actually downgraded that recommendation when they re-looked at the evidence. And I thought it was interesting why they did that. One of the reasons was some of the trials included in that Cochrane review were only abstracts. Uh, some of them, some of the trials ref referenced unpub unpublished data and only two of the 39 trials had a low risk for bias. And because of that, and also because there's a ton of literature, there's a ton of clinical trial registries for probiotic trials, but then they don't make it into peer review publications. And that again is, is another red flag. So they ended up giving a low certainty of evidence. And, uh, and the, the, the final thing I'll talk about, which also was given a low certainty of evidence was question number six in this guideline, which says in adults and kids, with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, which also very common in primary, primary care, should probiotics be used to just for overall global well-being and for their pain severity. And the, the evidence for uh, adults and kids was low there too. And it's, it's all for these same reasons. And I, I think what's really challenging, I was even just trying to look up the, because they did make recommendations for specific strains and it, it's hard to even find the formulas that they're talking about because there's so many different formulations. 
and they're not regulated. So you really don't know what you're getting. And I, I can imagine it'd be hard to recommend this to patients. For the single strain, there's Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a, or boulardii, which is a yeast. And then there's, for any of the bacterial strains, they always needed at least two combinations. So usually some lactobacillus, uh, bifidobacterium, and then the other one was streptococcus salivarius. So you can look for streptococcus salivarius, lactobacillus, and bifidobacterium, or saccharomyces. And it seems like the co- you, you need multi uh, multiple combinations of the bacterial types. Only saccharom- saccharomyces was the only one that worked by itself. The other ones all needed to be in combination. And so what does this leave us with? The AGA guidelines decided that there was a knowledge gap and that they couldn't make recommendations for the use of probiotics to treat C. diff infection or for the treatment of adults and children with IBS symptoms. But they did make a conditional recommendation based on low quality of evidence that you could use probiotics for patients who are on antibiotic therapy for other reasons. And this guideline did refer to patients uh, in most of these studies, patients who were not severely like immunosuppressed or under active cancer treatment, uh, organ transplant. So I would not extrapolate this to those patients. So I would give this uh, two hotcakes. Uh, probiotics, I will give two hotcakes because I'm not, I'm not super up on probiotics. Fecal transplants, though, those are really, as soon as those frozen stool capsules become available, Rahul, I'm, I'm all about those. After a course of antibiotics, that's that's the way to repopulate. It sounds like oh, the wait. evidence for fecal transplant has really floated to the top. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. I'm sorry. Well, I, I think that's the, all we. We're all, all sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all we have time for. What a way to end the show, Utibe! Thank you so much for joining us. It's it's really been a pleasure and talking about this this important article. And then uh, whatever I just presented as well. Uh, Emmy, thank you for teaching us about hormonal treatments for depression. And uh, I think that's all. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great. Get the show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Emmy Elizabeth Okamoto. And this has been Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Thanks so much to Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Thank you and have a good night. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.